Stanton Seminow, author of many books and essays on criminal psychology and co-author of a book that plays a crucial role in the ending of The Sopranos. So our listeners will remember that in the second to last episode of the show, The Blue Comet, Dr. Malfi's mentor, Elliot Kupferberg, pushes her into reading this study. It was fascinating. This, uh, the study was by um, Yoshelson and Seminow. Studies are turned around every few years. Food for thought. She's blowing us off. You just can't resist rubbing my face in it. <clears throat> I only suggested you reevaluate your work with Lead Belly or be prepared to deal with moral and possibly legal consequences. Which convinces her that there's no point in continuing to treat Tony, uh, that maybe therapy has actually made him worse. She holds this one final session with Tony and she lets him know what she really thinks of his behavior and then firmly tells him to get out. What do you know about your condition? You miss appointments because you don't give a shit about commitments, about what I do, about the body of work that's gone into building up this science. I don't think I can help you. What are you talking about? You're uh, firing me because I defaced your Departures magazine? I'm giving you my considered medical opinion. I'm gonna be fucking honest. As a doctor, I think what you're doing is immoral. He does. The door clicks shut. And we never see her again. So the study that ends their relationship is The Criminal Personality, written between 1976 and 1986, by Samuel Yokelson and our guest, Stanton Samenow. Um, Dr. Samenow, thank you very much for being with us here today. Glad to be with you. Yeah, just some background biographical um, questions on how you got into psychology, I think, first. Yeah, we, so you did your PhD in psychology at the University of Michigan in the, the mid-60s, and we were hoping you could tell us a little bit about those years. What were the kinds of questions that were driving psychology when you got started and what were the favorite approaches? That is a very easy question to answer very simply. <clears throat> the clinical psychology program at the University of Michigan in the 60s was monolithically Freudian, psychoanalytically oriented. They did mention other people, but it really was a Freudian outlook on human behavior. And although some of us in the graduate program balked at that, it turns out it was very good because if you learn an approach and you learn it well, there's something to be said for that. So I'm very grateful for that training at Michigan. It was good, even though inwardly I fought it at times. <laughs> yeah, one of the um, things that really interested us when we were looking into your work and your career is that you didn't start out interested in criminal psychology, right? You started off in adolescent psychology, writing about college dropouts. Absolutely. And uh, I had no interest in, quote, criminals 
unquote, none at all. And so I thought I would probably get a job in an adolescent unit at a psychiatric facility. No interest in criminals. Right. But Yokelson changed your mind by how did he get you to come work with him? I did get to know him. Um, my parents knew him from way back. Oh. And I just met him. And um, I heard about his, as he put it, his crooks. And he talked about it a lot. And um, it was mildly interesting. And then it became very clear that he had in mind that I would work for him because he had started the work in 1961 and I received my PhD in 1968, stayed on in Ann Arbor to finish my own analysis as well as to work in a psychiatric facility. So Dr. Yokelson um, talked to me about coming to work for him. And um, I said, well, it was interesting what he was doing, but um, I wasn't really interested in that field. So I remember I'm from Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and that is where he worked. So on one weekend, I think it was a Labor Day weekend, I came home and um, I stayed a couple of extra days. And he said, well, why don't you come over to St. Elizabeth's and you can meet some of my crooks? So I did and um, spent several hours with him and one of his men heard more about what he was doing. And I still said, well, it sounds great, but I don't think so. And I even set up a friend of mine, also a clinical psychologist, with that job possibility. But Yokelson didn't want him. He wanted me. <laughs> so he prevailed. And I thought to myself, you idiot, meaning myself, <laughs> why are you passing up an opportunity to work with somebody who's really doing something very different in an area you know nothing about, but tangentially was relevant to some of the work at Michigan because in the 1960s, some of the people who were coming into inpatient work, inpatient settings, they weren't your typical psychotic or extremely neurotic adolescent patient. We were getting, of course, I didn't think of it in these terms then, uh, kids who are really delinquent, conduct disorders, unmanageable, incorrigible. And I realized there, and then later at Northville State Hospital outside Detroit, that there were certain people I couldn't touch with the approach that I had learned, mm. that I actually learned more from them than they derived benefit from me. And so uh, Dr. Yokelson had also taken a great interest in my dissertation on the college dropout, because people who dropped out, males who dropped out of the University of Michigan in the 60s, they went to one place, Vietnam, hmm. except I had people who dropped out of the draft by various ruses, and these were people who I didn't consider criminals at the time, but it turned out I had bicycle thieves, drug users, drug sellers, a variety of crimes, although they were very bright and in certain ways very accomplished. So when it came to Yokelson, I'm thinking, okay, I had these dropouts from Michigan. I had the people at the Michigan Psychiatric Institute, and I had the Northville State Hospital people. None of these people was I able to reach 
with what I had learned. Mm -hmm. So I went to work for him starting in um, January 30th, 1970. Right. So, so just to clarify for our listeners, St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the, the people that he was working with there were people who had been found not guilty by reason of insanity. Is that right? That is people correct. St. Elizabeth's Hospital um, was a large federal mental hospital. And so he was working with, really, it turned out to be two groups. Initially, people who were declared by the court not guilty by reason of insanity. But as he went on, there were other people in the study who were not in the hospital, but they were referred uh, to him because it was a clinical research treatment study. And so there were people who were on probation, parole, and even some people who had committed many crimes but never been caught. So not all of the people were hospital patients, but that's how it started. And they were all men. Do you remember what it was like when you, you came to visit Jokelson doing his work at the hospital for the first time? It was like a visit to a foreign country. I mean, um, I just sat there and listened, and I had talked with him before, and I thought, well, you know, I have a lot I can learn here. Mm. I mean, I had no idea whether I would stick with it or what I would do, but it was obviously something that I felt if I passed this up, it would be something I would regret. And Yokelson was a very unusual man <laughs> and he had a great sense of humor. He was absolutely brilliant and he was also very intense. And when I say intense, that doesn't mean he used profanity. Never did he use profanity, but he was a serious thinker. He was a scholar. And whenever he went into anything, it was in enormous depth. And he had no exaggeration, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of transcribed interviews. Mm. And his interviews would be two and three hours at a time. So there was this huge amount of material. And that is where I came in, because I was to go through this material, organize it, and eventually um, help to write something because he had written nothing. And a lot of people thought he hadn't been doing anything. He had been funded <laughs> in this study for years, but there had been no publication. Uh, and he kept saying, I'm trying to refine my concepts, which he was. And so finally, um, he knew that uh, it was time to publish his findings. And that's where I came in. And then as I went into all these pages of dictation, the notes, um, he, he had me sit in on his meetings with criminals, and I began to learn some of the, uh, his approach and his uh, way of reaching them, talking to them, and then he gave me a person to work with. And so, you know, it evolved from there. Needless to say, I was absolutely fascinated. Uh, I stayed with it. He died in, uh, on November 12th, I think it was, 1976, his first time out of the D.C. area to speak on this work. And he was wow. going to speak at a conference in Carbondale, Illinois, at Southern Illinois University. And I, last thing I said to him was, um, take a warm coat, because it was in November. And he collapsed in the St. Louis airport, and he died in a hospital near St. Louis, actually. And so I was the heir to the work. And I stayed until I finished the third volume of The Criminal Personality. And in uh, June of 1978, 
I then opened my own office and left St. Elizabeth's. Right. See. So yeah, so let's, I guess, start to talk about the work itself a little bit. Um, so I read the first volume. You talk a lot about how you and Yokelson, yeah, you sort of went in with this psychodynamic approach and quickly realized it was not going to work and you became disillusioned with it and developed your cognitive phenomenological approach. Could you briefly lead us through what that, you know, sort of unlearning was like and developing this new way of interacting with these uh, criminals, patients? Well, I'll give you an anecdote that I don't believe was in the first volume, and that is that there came a time when some of the people he was working with, the criminals he was working with, decided to throw a little birthday party for him and uh, because they were appreciative of what he was doing. Well, it turned out he discovered that some of the supplies with which they had held the party had been stolen from the hospital. And he said that what he had was criminals with psychiatry rather than criminals without. But they remained criminals and they were using the very psychiatry, the very approach he was taking to not only explain and justify the past, but to explain and justify future behavior. So this is why the first chapter of volume one is called The Reluctant Converts. Yes, it refers, <laughs> yeah, it refers not to the criminals, no. but to us and how right. reluctant we were to lead our sacred theoretical cows to pasture and to slaughter them. So for me, it was as though everything I learned in graduate school was irrelevant to this population. And I want right. to be clear about that because I'm not saying that my whole graduate education was worthless at all, but it is just this, that it really did not apply to this population. And the thing about Yokelson that was one of many outstanding features is he was very self-critical in a constructive manner. So he said there's search and research. And so this was a search that lasted the rest of his life. Right, yes. And this book that you put together, the two of you, three volumes, extremely extensive, very, very descriptive. Could you, just for our listeners who are not familiar with it, could you briefly, as briefly as possible, at least just the first two volumes, sort of sum up the main thesis and the big takeaways that you would want people to know? I, I think I can do that by making several points. Um, and of course, the work has not been without controversy, but that's another matter. So we were looking into reasons why causes of criminal behavior. Now, I will say parenthetically, everything but the federal deficit has been blamed for criminal behavior. And I now have a collection of articles that is huge that ascribes criminality to anything and everything you can imagine. But back to the study. And that is, we thought when we began that crime was largely a product of one's environment. That if you grew up in a home where there were terrible role models, where there was violence, if you grew up in a neighborhood riddled with gangs and drugs, if you were abused as a child, that the roots of criminality could be found in 
one sort of disadvantage or another. In other words, that the environment causes crime. And what we found was that the environment can provide greater or fewer opportunities for criminal behavior, greater or lesser deterrence, but all of the alleged causes did not stand up. So, and this, and this has been true for me all the way along. I've now been in this work a half century. And that is when you take a person who comes from, let's say the far Southeast in DC, which is not an area that tourists habitually go to, but there are a lot of problems, a lot of poverty, a lot of, a lot of problems, the, the inner city. But we interviewed people, and I have interviewed people since then, who come from these very difficult backgrounds. And I'm not telling you or anybody that the environment doesn't have any effect. It does. But what has impressed me more and more over all these years is not the environment, that a person comes from and how he or she chooses to deal with life. So in nearly every case where we had a repeat offender, a person who made crime a way of life, that person had a brother, a sister, neighbors who grew up under the same or worse conditions and they did have problems, but they did not follow a criminal path. And this one example to me I won't say it says it all, but it says a lot. So one of the men who was referred to as a gorilla because he was a great big guy, you name it, he had done it. We had, and he did come from Southeast DC. And we interviewed his sister who had been a Red Cross worker for many, many years. And we asked her, why is it with such bad role models? I mean, she had a father who was in prison. She had this brother who was at St. Elizabeth's, there were gangs in the street, drugs were as easy to come by as candy. Why did you, we asked his sister, not follow in their paths and the paths of so many in that neighborhood? She answered in three words, I wasn't interested. Now, what that meant was that it wasn't like one day she decided she didn't want to be a criminal, but that over time, she made a series of choices as to who she wanted to be like, who, what was important to her, what she wanted to emulate. So in a way, you could say what the sociologists like to call risk factors. Those actually for her were opportunity factors because they represented what she did not want to become. And we found this over and over and over. And it mm. didn't matter whether the person was from a very impoverished, difficult background, or whether they came from a rather privileged background, because we had people in the study from a variety of demographic groups. So point one, the environment may encourage or discourage crime. Crime resides within the person the choices that individual makes. Point two, we found that there were certain thinking patterns that were common to all criminals, regardless of race, ethnicity, social background, education, or other demographic variables. We took a scratch on the table approach. We said, you don't have to know why the table is scratched. And it may not even help you if you did know why, but you've got to know what the table is made up of so you can make decisions about what to do with the table, if anything. The analogy being, we do not know why these people are the way they are. There are a zillion theories, 
So we turned to thinking. Behavior is a product of thinking. And the focus became the thought patterns. Now, these thought patterns, we all have to a degree. So it doesn't take a federal study, and the study was sponsored by the federal government, National Institute of Mental Health, doesn't take a federal study years to say that criminals lie because everybody, well, I can't say everybody, but most people lie, whether Mm -hmm. it's a small lie, um, but they lie. But there is a difference, not only quantitatively, but qualitatively between a person who tells a lie to prevent embarrassment, or you tell your kid the medicine doesn't taste bad, but you know it's not good, but you want him to taste the medicine, and a person who lies not only to conceal all that he's doing, but he will lie for what seems to be no reason at all. He'll say he went to McDonald's when he went to Burger King. He'll say he rode in a blue hundy when he rode in a red Nissan. Lies roll off his tongue as automatically as he breathes. And then, of course, people in my field, the mental health field, they want to make an illness out of it. And they call it pathological lying, compulsive lying. These are individuals who can tell the truth and will do it if they think it serves their purpose. So there is a purpose in the seemingly purposeless lie. Our goal, our objective, what we were driven to was to try to understand the world from the offender's point of view, to take the causal theories, put them to the side, our labels, put them to the side. How do these people see the world? So the purpose to the lie that seems to be without purpose is that by lying, these people have a sense of power that they can pull the wool over the eyes of others and get away with things. So it enhances a sense of power. And I remember a 16 year old, not this was not part of the study, but who I saw and he said to me, it's so easy because people wanna believe you. And so it's easy to get away with it. But you can take all these different thinking patterns that Yokelson and I wrote about and For people who make crime a way of life, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. If you have a person who lies as a way of life, a person who tries to control others, and that's inherent in his self-esteem, a person who vacillates from seeing himself as number one, but if somebody looks at him the wrong way or somebody makes a gesture, it threatens to reduce him to a nothing. He's going to show he's somebody and get even. These peaks and swamps in the way they view themselves. And yet, these individuals who seem uncompromising, very scary, there's another side to them. There's the sentimental side. There's the side that loves babies, old people, the mafia guy who has a shrine, religious shrine in his own home, our guy, the gorilla, who used to wear a cross around his neck and touch it every time he said a four-letter word, but that didn't stop him from mugging people in the streets. So savage brutality and maudlin sentiment reside side by side within the same individual. And yes, they do know right from wrong. But as one said, I can make anything right wrong, anything wrong right. Right is what I want to do at the time. And contrary to popular belief, there are, shall we say, fragments of conscience, but they're not fully operational. The guy who broke into a elderly woman's home and when she wasn't there and made off with jewelry and money. When he learned that she had terminal cancer, he felt so remorseful that he had everything returned to her. But it didn't (laughs) stop him from breaking into other people's homes. 
So the conscience is a rather threadbare one. I think that, that that's a, a really perfect segue into the topic of our show, because the character that you're describing is um, a really fitting description of the protagonist of The Sopranos, Tony Soprano. And I, I wonder if you could give us a summary of what your findings were about how a character like Tony, how a criminal personality, as you um, use that term, responds to the form of therapy that, that you started out trying to practice with these right. guys. Psychodynamic therapy. Yeah, talk therapy. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, some people who are like that are ordered in the therapy by a court or a probation officer. That was not true with Tony Soprano. He came to Dr. Melfi because of panic attacks that he was having. Mm -hmm. And so he was, if you want to say, self-motivated. He had something that really bothered him. So whether a person comes voluntarily like that, and we had a couple of those in our study, uh, or whether they're ordered by some legal authority, from the very beginning, there are two evaluations going on, of course. The mental health professional, in this case, Dr. Melfi, is, of course, evaluating her patient, and the patient is evaluating Dr. Melfi. And so with Tony, it's all very complicated, and with Dr. Melfi, it's very complicated. Right. But she does take a psychoanalytic or Freudian approach, and there is a lot of emphasis, and, and it's based a lot on his talking about his mother, but mm -hmm. a lot about his mother and her coldness and her inconsistencies as she raised Tony and whether or not she actually hired somebody or wanted somebody to kill her own son. Anyway, that was uh, a major topic. So anyway, somebody taking a psychodynamic approach, the, the basis of it is to say, well, what you are experiencing now has its roots in early childhood and there are factors that you're not aware of. So it's making the unconscious conscious, mm -hmm. getting you to go back to relax your defenses and to try to understand why you are the way you are. So that really is the approach. And that's how it appears Dr. Melfi was trained. And that is the approach that she took. And obviously, at least to me, she genuinely wanted to help her patient. Mm -hmm. And she took him uh, where he was, meaning he came for these panic attacks. And of course, Tony wanted, as was true in everything in life, he wanted instant results. Um, he wanted to be cured of these panic attacks. And uh, there is no instant cure. And that was a source of great frustration. I mean, here he was coming to this shrink. And, you know, what Tony wants, Tony expects to get and get on his terms. And that wasn't exactly happening. Yeah, we're going to ask your your opinion of Dr. Melfi and her treatment later on. But um, we, we first wanted to talk about how it came to be that your book was like this pivotal moment in the show. Yeah, um, I, I have a little anecdote here about how David Chase got the idea for it. The Sopranos crew was at a psychiatric conference on the work and they spoke with Nancy Duggan. Uh, who was a psychiatrist, I believe, or a psychologist. And she, you know, explained the premise of your work. And David Chase says it blew his mind as soon as he heard about it. And he said, well, that's got to be the end of the show. So it's really, you you killed the Sopranos. It's <laughs> you are why he decided to end the show. But yeah, did, did David Chase ever reach out to you? Did you know no, it was going to be on the fact, show? 
you, you, I, this may, may you may find amusing. Hmm. I had never watched it. Oh, huh. Yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> never. No, and a neighbor called me. Um, and I think my wife and I actually had been away. Anyway, I think we were overseas um, when that those episodes aired. But I, I hadn't watched any of it. So this neighbor said, you were mentioned, and you and Yokelson and, and the book were mentioned on The Sopranos. <laughs> I said, really? And she said, well, she had she had taped it. And did I want to watch it? So, of course, I did. And I got some calls. Uh -huh. um, like I remember Fox News and there were other uh, media outlets. And when I said that I had never watched it, they found it that more interesting than anything I had to say <laughs> about it because I hadn't watched it. I mean, I hadn't seen the series. Right. Uh -huh. So, um, no, I was not contacted by anyone on the show. And, and in fact, a rather amusing thing, I went to testify in a hearing in court and the judge, as I was going up to the witness stand said, uh, Dr. Samenow, congratulations. And I looked at him and I said, what for your honor? And he said, well, you've entered the mainstream. You were mentioned on The Sopranos. <laughs> I said, oh, well, thank you, your honor, and went up to testify. So um, no, I was not uh, contacted about it. Uh -huh. yeah, but yeah. you've written like a couple of short essays on The Sopranos since. So did you go back and watch the show? Did you become a fan? Oh, absolutely. My <laughs> wife and I watched the whole thing. But you know, we didn't do it until the pandemic last summer. Really? Oh, no kidding. Wow. It took, it took, no, well, we watched the episodes where I was mentioned. Right. But uh -huh. we never. And the reason is that I don't watch programs about crime. Uh -huh. People ask me, you know, if I watch this, that or the other or criminal minds or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I don't watch them. It's like a busman's holiday. I mean, I have enough right. of it in my <laughs> regular work. So um, it just occurred to us, I mean, while we're inside, as everybody, many people were, that we mm -hmm. watched the whole series. And I thought it was fantastic. And I guess like many people, I was sorry it ended. Yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was riveting television. Yes. But I, not till last year did we see it. Oh, that's so funny because we also, we did a rewatch in the pandemic. That was why we started doing a podcast. Yeah. yeah, also loved it again and thought we'd like to dig a bit deeper into this. Yeah. So, so the, the question I've been dying to ask you is, Melfi's not the only therapist on the show and most therapists on the show are figures of fun. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have a wholly positive attitude towards psychiatry. But there is this one guy, if you remember, Carmela goes to see an older therapist named Dr. Krakauer early in the show. And he kind of gives us a glimpse at another therapeutic method. He tells Carmela that she just has to leave Tony. He says, many patients want to be excused for their current predicament because of events that occurred in their childhood. He's opposed to this view. And his advice to Carmela is the only way she's going to address her feelings of guilt and shame is to extricate herself from, from her life in the mafia. She's got to accept none of Tony's money because it's blood money. And he tells her, take only the children, what's left of them, and go. So we were both reminded of this scene when we were reading a piece in one of your books where you say that a change agent, which is uh, for our listeners, your, your term that you prefer to therapist, a change agent understands that the offender is confronting an extremely agonizing dilemma. Whether to make the leap of faith that is necessary to embark on building a life with which he has no personal experience. And like Krakauer, you kind of paint a Dostoyevskian picture of redemption, um, where it starts with a leap of faith 
And it requires this wholesale transformation of attitudes and of life. And also it requires kind of constant rumination on your own actions, not in terms of their causes, but as evil, as bad actions. Right. The, the term you use often is self-disgust is necessary. Right. right. So Dr. Krakauer says Tony might re be redeemed provided he spends seven years in prison reading crime and punishment and reflecting on his crimes. Would you agree with that? What's your prescription for Tony? Uh, well, I think that, well, the question is always this for anybody. What does it take for a person to change? And they talk about rock bottom. That's a, maybe a, an expression used with alcoholics. But for any, any of us to change anything about ourselves in a meaningful or enduring way, we have to become fed up with it or disgusted, whether it's being overweight or smoking or drinking or whatever it is. But for a criminal, it involves becoming fed up with an entire way of life, with who he is and how he's lived that life. And unfortunately, the reality is that for many and probably most, they have to have something pretty, what to them is devastating happen. And that could be the slam of the prison door. But of course, as we know, the slam of the prison door for some is just another opportunity to try to reign REIGN in prison. So they're not fed up at all. This is new, another arena for their criminality. There are some, there are some when that door slams, that which they knew could happen, but of course wasn't going to happen to them has now happened. And so that can be a time where a mental health professional could have their attention, but then it's a long road to work with them. So I think that um, the statement that Tony needed to end up in prison and maybe be there for a while, given the, that he's at the extreme end of a criminal continuum, um, probably wasn't so far off. And even then, there's no guarantee. Right. Well, yeah, because Tony really does. I mean, he, uh, Chase, you know, hadn't read your work before writing the show. He, you know, discovered it at the end of the show. But he, Tony really does align a lot with many of the attributes you ascribe to a criminal personality. He's very sentimental about animals and at times his mother. Yeah, he likes little babies and animals far more than he has empathy for people. He fundamentally thinks he's a good guy and not a criminal. Uh, he describes his criminality in terms of things he, he doesn't do. You know, he says he doesn't torture little children. He's so he's, you know, he's fundamentally a good guy. Never opens a channel with his therapist, which is obviously a big obstacle to their therapy. Many of the, um, the insights that he gains in therapy, the ones that he accepts or that change his behavior are those that help him in his criminal enterprises. Like when he, um, he uses a trick that Malfi gives him to let his uncle junior think that he's boss of the family while tony runs things from behind the scenes yeah so whereas yeah, the other insights don't don't really stick yeah um so yeah so so melfi unbeknownst to her is dealing with what you would term a criminal personality but she's coming from this talk therapy approach what could she have done differently i mean is there any way for her to have done a good job with tony at one point she talks about handing him off to a behaviorist um and that kind of falls through is there a right way to conduct therapy while your patient is actively involved in violent or organized crime? Is that possible? No, <laughs> no. And if, if she were to work with him in any way, it would have to be in terms of his thinking patterns, 
his insistence on controlling everyone and everything, his unrealistic expectations, his view of himself as number one, all of the characteristics you're talking about. Right. I was really interested in the way that the book describes how, how um, the people you're calling criminals use therapy to as a kind of release valve for their own guilt about their actions or as a way to assure themselves that at root they are good people or that the causes of their behavior are external to themselves. And I think both of us were wondering, how far is this a critique that would extend beyond the realm of of criminal psychology? Do you think that this is a a general feature of talk therapy, that, that it can, in finding causes in the past, for behavioral patterns in the present sort of allows someone, yeah, sort of provides this sort of vent for cognitive dissonance that lets them comfortably maintain bad behavior. I mean, I, we all, everybody knows someone who, you know, has been mired in therapy for years and has never really made any progress. Like how, how applicable is this model? Um, especially the model of thinking errors. Is it more broadly applicable to, you know, you talk about the spectrum of criminals to non-criminals. Is it applicable to that entire spectrum? Absolutely. Well, because behavior is a product of thinking. What I'm saying to you now is a product of thoughts. And I'm filtering thoughts because as you could tell, I could talk about this for hours and hours (laughs) and have. So yes, I think it can be applied across the spectrum. And frankly, I went through an orthodox psychoanalysis, you know, four days a week for several years with an orthodox Freudian analyst. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I, I did derive some benefit. I'm not right. just trashing it, but I think that a cognitive approach in which um, the therapist dealt with my expectations of myself and how I perceive things and focusing on thinking is a lot more effective and often more efficient. Yes, people got mired down in analysis. Well, Freud wrote an essay, analysis terminable or interminable. <laughs> well, some people are in, have been in analysis, particularly in the 60s. It's so expensive and insurance doesn't cover it. So it's kind of rare now, yeah. but um, it's only partially helpful. And people have problems and they can be helped, I think, far more efficiently and effectively. It's not like it's a shortcut. It's right. that working with thinking is a very powerful method. Excellent. Um, that's really interesting. Yes, that's yeah, fascinating. One place that it's very difficult to accept your theory is, is in its application to children. Um, so, you know, the word criminal child for many people is going to sound like a contradiction in terms. Um, people under the age of maturity aren't responsible for their actions and they are shaped by um, figures around them. Or, or That's, you know, a very natural view for a lot of people. So I'm thinking about Tony, again, as an example, he's born into the mafia. All of his relatives, all of his male relatives are professionally involved in organized crime. And they induct him into this business through like a series of of rituals that are designed to sustain a criminal organization. So in, in cases like this, do you think that environmental factors or factors like parents' models are capable of creating behaviors like Tony's, are capable of creating a personality that in order to survive in, in this world, takes on the, the features that you talk about as the criminal personality? Well, I think there's a lot to be overcome, certainly. But I don't think it's inevitable. And you talk about um, the word criminal child. 
that is a troublesome phrase for the reason that you said. And so I prefer to talk about the criminal as a child, but you, you know this, and I know this, that there are kids who from a very early age are lying, they're taking things, they do not respond to limits, to boundaries. And yes, for some it's a stage and they change and they don't become career criminals. But there are those where these patterns expand and intensify and they really commit some horrible, horrible crimes even though they're 13, 14, 15. And I have seen some who are pretty extreme, even at the age of nine and 10, where they're stealing and arson and the other things that they do. But back, back to your, your question. So there is a lot to overcome, but people still choose over time how they're going to deal with their environment. And there are people who make choices to escape some very toxic environments. So I would not agree if one were to say, well, it is inevitable that there was no hope that he was totally doomed. But yes, it would certainly be hard. But remember, the child is going to school and there are influences with the church, the school, other kids in the neighborhood. So there are influences. And years ago, a sociologist who wrote a book called Delinquency and Drift said that even in some of the most uh, difficult, they love the word criminogenic environments, that there are forces for responsible functioning right there in the neighborhood and in the kid's day-to-day -day existence. So those should not be ignored. Great. That's really helpful. And I think one question on that is, the Sopranos, the show at least, presents us with a world where those kind of forces, the church, the schools, are totally corrupted by the same institutional influence of the mafia that, that runs everything in Tony's life. The school that he sends his own son to, he's donating massive amounts of money to. The church runs pretty much exclusively on the, the donations of these mafia families. So one, one thesis of the show, I suppose, is that while Tony is himself a criminal, there is a broader complicity in what's going on. While many of the mafia guys have this criminal personality features that you're talking about, there are all these other people in the show who are benefiting from the same suffering and exploitation that they're causing and are not, uh, they don't have those personalities themselves, but they are nonetheless awaiting their Raskolnikov moment, awaiting their break with the system that, that they're living inside of. So I know I'm... I, I wouldn't uh, dispute that at all, but I'm still saying to you that um, children of mafia members, they do go to school. And whether the school <laughs> is corrupted by donors like Tony or not, there are other children that they're with day in and day out. And not all of those children are juvenile delinquents or future criminals. That's all I'm saying, that... There are other ways, there are other paths that are visible on a day-to-day mm -hmm. -day basis for mm -hmm. people in that environment. And by the way, people who are, quote, being corrupted or taking bribes, they're on my continuum. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes. they, may yeah. not be, they may not be out in the streets committing crimes daily, but uh, criminals come in all stripes and colors. Right. Yeah, yes, I, I think that um, that is something that the show would agree with you on. That's yes. Everybody is somewhere on this spectrum. Yeah. And, um, and one that, thing that you I... See, that, 
Well, the, uh -huh. the, the whole spectrum idea, if that isn't there, see, you live and learn. In the beginning, uh -huh. um, people said, oh, Sam and Alan Yokelson, the criminal personality. Well, by their, what they've written, everybody's a criminal because everybody lies. And, you know, people sometimes advance themselves at the expense of others, blah, blah, blah. So the continuum is really important. There's probably nobody that's perfect, perfectly responsible, never does anything that's, <laughs> um, you know, illicit. But there's a big difference. And I said that if you have these thinking patterns, they combine and the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Tony Soprano and others like him have a radically different view of the world from mm. most people who are basically responsible. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's honestly experiencing that view of the world as part of the appeal of the show, that it is sort of an alien way of interacting with people and the voyeurism of the audience of Melfi of Kupferberg is all sort of part of that. Right. Everybody is fascinated with Tony who comes into contact with him. Everybody yeah. um, sees the, yeah, the pull of this approach to life, this completely self-interested narcissistic approach. Yes. Okay. We wanted to ask you all kinds of things about the reception of the book, but since we're coming to the end of the interview, I just want to ask you your thoughts on, on this final thing, the, the Krakauer approach that we talked about at the beginning, the therapist Carmela goes to see. In the end, that's not more effective for Carmela than, than Malfi's therapy is for um, Tony. Partly because for Carmela to make this break that he advocates, she has to give up every condition of her, her material security, this wealth that her life runs on, her fancy house. She has to put herself at the mercy of this vindictive and violent husband who is the boss of the mafia. You agree that this kind of change is extremely hard for an individual to commit to. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering, in your vision of criminal rehabilitation or, or habilitation, as you prefer to call it, it seems very pessimistic about the possibility of, of change in the sense of fixing crime, of doing away with it as a feature of society. Is that true? Is the only way that cr criminal personalities can change having this this very rare and quite difficult road to Damascus moment. Do you think crime will always be with us? Well, I do think crime will always be with us, but um, there are people, and I get emails from them from time to time, who um, have become aware of the work that I've been part of, and they have identified these features in themselves, and they have spoken about changes that they have made on their own. And there are people can change their thinking. They don't have to necessarily go see a mental health professional. If mm -hmm. they reach a point in their lives where things are not working out, where the things that were important to them are not going the way they thought, um, they can change their thinking. Um, so I wish I could say that uh, Yokelson and I had the cure for crime, hardly. <laughs> On the other hand, we're not saying that. Um, mental health professionals have the cure either. And in fact, the concepts, the, the reporting of thinking and criticizing thinking, you don't have to be a PhD or MD to do this kind of work. But yes, crime will be with us, but there are other routes to change other than the labor laborious, slow, tedious process. But these are individuals who are not too motivated to change. They're just not. And right. something pretty devastating has to have happened or be on, or they have to perceive it in the offing for them to start thinking differently. 
Right. Well, I think, yeah, one of the main theses of the show, of The Sopranos, is how difficult change is on a personal level, or on, on any level, but the show focuses on personal levels. Almost uniformly, people are unable to achieve lasting change in their own lives. Well, but because, because change is very, very difficult, it doesn't mean it can't happen. Right. I mean, for people to give up smoking, if you just take one thing, there are people who have just... Uh, hellish time, and, and, and they don't ever give it up. Even if they develop lung cancer, they still smoke. You were the one who was supposed to quit smoking and didn't. That just changed an addictive substance. But on the <laughs> other hand, there are people who do reach a point, I'm just taking one behavior, where they see all the minuses and they quit. It happens. Now, I understand criminality is a lot bigger than one habit. But I'm just saying, if, if I, as a clinical psychologist, did not continue to believe that change is possible, then what's the point? <laughs> right. Yes. No, all really. I mean, right. And um, it isn't just because it pays the bills. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm of age where certainly I don't have to keep working and I'm still seeing people. Right. Um, I'm not treating, I am not currently treating criminals, but I am doing evaluations by remote, even in jails. So, I, you know, I'm continuing to, to work on this. Well, yeah, you are absolutely pivotal um, to the ending of the series, to the ending of, of Tony himself. And yeah, it's been, it's a, been a real delight talking to you about your experiences and Yes. Yeah, well, I got educated by you about, about this whole thing with Nancy Duggan. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact that you, you've read the book even, I mean, it's long. It is and quite it's long. Kind of, and it's kind of polemical, the, my inside the criminal mind that I've written since. And actually, there's going to be yet another edition that comes oh. out in February. Mm -hmm. That's much more, uh, the editor said to me, um, he, it, was, it was to be a trade book. He said, write the way you speak. Volume one comes across, it's very dogmatic and polemical and uh, subsequent writings to make it more um, digestible is less so. No, it took me, it took me several months in fits and starts. So I will, I will cop to that. It was not a, it was not a breezy read, but yes, it was very Salute you for doing it. Great. Well, it was a really good interview and uh, thank you very much. No, thank, thank you. you. It, was, it, was, it was really, it was really great. Okay. Very good. Thanks right, so much. Thank you very much. much. All right. Have a right. good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. I'm a born killer. You're face to face with Scarface. You're trying to isolate, but that's a motherfucking waste. You food fucked up, G. And your mama should have warned you about a nigga like me. Because I don't weep and I don't sleep. Say that motherfucking flat because talk is cheap. But uh, since you got beef, let's take it to the streets and I'm going to bring it to your ass, G. I'm coming from the heart, son, and I don't take no shit. But I'm about to start something. And which one of you hoes want to jump? If you got static, then get it off your chest, punk. Because I ain't born none. If you're feeling lucky, then go ahead and get yourself. I ain't with this fuck shit. If you ain't in tricks, then get